and welcome to the first ever episode of The Climate Conversation, brought to you by the Environmental and Energy Study Institute. I am your co-host, Dan Brissett. I also happen to be ESI's Executive Director. Uh, let me start by introducing everyone to Sydney O'Shaughnessy, our intrepid communications associate, and also my podcast co-host. Hi, Sid. How are you doing today? Hi, Dan. I'm doing great. So excited to be kicking off ESI's brand new podcast, The Climate Conversation. Excellent. Uh, I think this is going to be good fun. Uh, starting today and from here on out, every two weeks, Sid and I will bring climate solutions to you through this new medium, or at least new to us. We hope that you like what you hear and will join us each episode as we talk through some of the most important climate change topics on everyone's mind. And for those of you who don't know, this podcast will present you with relevant climate change solutions happening on the Hill and in communities around the United States through conversational interviews with experts in the environmental, energy, and policy fields. We'll mainly focus on on-the-ground work that communities, companies, and governments are doing to address climate change. So let's dig into our first topic. Sid, over to you. Let me let you do the honors. Of course. Today, we are going to get started with a look at resilience in coastal communities, and it is no coincidence why we decided to talk about resilience for our first episode. Just on Monday, EESI released an extensive report on coastal resilience called A Resilient Future for Coastal Communities, Federal Policy Recommendations from Solutions in Practice, based on our 16-part resilience briefing series. Over more than a year, we brought together panels of experts, practitioners, and community leaders, 42 in total, to learn about how coastal communities across the US, from Alaska to Puerto Rico, Hawaii to the Great Lakes, New York to Louisiana, are dealing with the resilience challenges posed by climate change. Yes, and over that process, or during that process, we covered a wide range of issues, disaster policy and pre-disaster mitigation, relocation and retreat from flood-prone areas, cultural heritage, data and modeling, and community engagement. Today, we will talk to our policy colleagues, Anna McGinn and Amber Todorov, about the report, how it came together, and some key recommendations to make our coastal communities more resilient. Welcome, Anna and Amber. It's so nice that you could join us today. How are you? Great. Thanks for inviting us to join you for the first episode of the podcast. No problem, Anna. We mentioned the 16-part briefing series earlier, but can you bring us up to speed on the series? Amber, tell me, where did it start and how did it lead to this report? Well, in June 2019, we kicked off the series on Capitol Hill with the briefing on the Gulf Coast. Representative Charlie Crisp from Florida provided opening remarks, which set the tone for the whole series. I think we have a clip from the event. Let's pull it up. I live in St. Petersburg, Florida which is on the West Coast, and I represent St. Petersburg and Clearwater. And where I live is called Pinellas County. And Pinellas County is literally a peninsula. So uh, coastal resiliency is pretty darn important to me. Florida is also a peninsula. So these kinds of issues have been uh, rattling around my brain for a long time and very important to my fellow Floridians, but very important to our planet, as you know. And so the existence of rising sea levels is something that I have seen with my own eyes in my home state. Uh, in fact, I'm going to be in Miami. There's a little debate down there later this week. And on Miami Beach, there's a place called Alton Road, 
where literally when it's not raining, it floods. And I think it was President Obama who recognized this issue and said, when it's not raining and it's flooding, you got to realize the sea is rising. And I think most people appreciate that. And it's really not a partisan issue, at least it shouldn't be. Um, look, I used to be a Republican, I am now a Democrat, and I feel like that uh, if you live near the coast anywhere, uh, you're probably pretty aware that this is happening and that this is real, and we need to pay attention to it and do everything that we possibly can to address it. And so that's why I'm privileged, Ellen, to be here in the United States Congress to help you and other organizations uh, that are involved do everything that we can to address this issue. Uh, because it's coming at us, it's coming at us fast, and it's increasing in its intensity. Um, and it's all related to climate change. And, you know, again, being a Floridian, we have these storms called hurricanes. And last year, Hurricane Michael was coming up the Gulf Coast in the Gulf Coast of Mexico, in the uh, Gulf of Mexico. And by the time it approached the panhandle in Florida, it had become a Category 5 storm extremely quickly. Uh, and so that's another consequence of climate change and why we need to be as concerned as we are about coastal resilience as we are about the kind of storms that this thing creates. So I want to thank you for being here. I want to thank you for being focused on this important issue. Uh, it's probably the most important issue we have because if we don't have a planet, we don't have a future. And that's where this is. As you heard from Representative Christ, he has seen firsthand the impacts of hurricanes and sea level rise in his district and emphasized that enhancing coastal resilience is key to the safety, livelihoods, and culture of coastal communities. As we ran through the briefing series, we knew we were collecting really interesting information that if brought together could be an important tool to inform congressional work on climate adaptation and resilience. So in close collaboration with the 42 panelists who participated in the briefing series, we put together this report. It includes 30 recommendations, which are each accompanied by specific examples that were presented during the series and show how work is already happening in really creative ways at the state, regional, and local levels. This report is not designed to cover every possible policy on adaptation resilience, but rather to bring to the forefront really valuable ideas presented during the briefing series on these topics. Awesome, and we've been talking a lot about coastal resilience and the report focused on it, but for our listeners who don't know, can you explain what coastal resilience is and why it's important? Resilience can be a tough word to define. It means a lot of things to a lot of different people. But for the purposes of the series and for our report, we draw on the definitions provided by the National Climate Assessment. So according to the NCA, resilience is essentially a capability to anticipate, prepare for, respond to, and recover from threats like hurricanes or wildfires with minimum damage to people, the economy, and the environment. And also for the purposes of our work here, coastal resilience applied this definition to coastal areas. In our case, the Pacific Coast, Atlantic Coast, and the Great Lakes. And we can't discuss resilience without adaptation. Adaptation is, according to the National Climate Assessment, adjustments to a new or changing environment that take advantage of beneficial opportunities or avoid negative effects. And to build on what Amber, Amber just explained, um, and to go with the second part of your question of why this is important, uh, it's a really important one. We're seeing the impacts of climate change now. 
the higher global average temperature caused by the increase of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere are making conditions in the West drier, fueling wildfires, and there's increased moisture in hurricanes causing more intense rain. We're also seeing unprecedented flooding across the country and shifting growing seasons impacting farmers from the West Coast all the way to the East Coast. And these, this is just to name a couple of the impacts we're seeing. So we need to adapt to ensure that all communities across the U.S., including coastal communities, are more resilient. So Anna and Amber, uh, I'm going to put myself in the shoes of a staff person on Capitol Hill. I'm a staff person. I work for a representative so-and-so, Senator so-and-so. My boss represents a coastal state, a coastal district. Uh, I'm out walking my dog right now, listening to ESI's first ever podcast uh, and loving it. And I'm thinking, what do I need to know about the report? So what is the bottom line of the report? What are the key takeaways in your opinion? Thanks, Dan. Um, so I think a really great place to start is the six guiding principles of the report. The idea of the principles is that no matter which recommendations you're interested in, you should always be thinking about how these principles inform designing a program or piece of legislation around those recommendations. Exactly, Anna. And the six principles are one, Federal policies and programs must be designed based on future likely climate scenarios. Two, climate justice and equity must be fully embedded into new and current policies and programs. Three, the federal government should lead in connecting science with practice, including collaborating with state, local, and tribal efforts. Four, the federal government should facilitate intra and interagency coordination to ensure end users can access available coastal resilience resources. Five, federal investments in coastal communities must be leveraged to create local jobs and train workers. Six, adaptation and resilience should also produce carbon mitigation co-benefits. Thanks for running through the principles, Amber. So always keeping those principles in mind, the report then highlights resilience recommendations and example projects by theme or topic. So those are community, land use and development, cultural heritage, climate adaptation data, disaster preparedness, and financing climate adaptation and resilience. Can you each give us a couple examples of the policy recommendations in the report? Yes, for sure. That's the fun part. So one recommendation in the community section is that federal agencies should provide funding within adaptation and resilience grant opportunities for training local leaders. We thought this was a really cool idea that came out of the briefing series. And basically, the idea is that integrating communities into climate adaptation and resilience programs is essential, but it also requires money and resources. So federal grants providing support for adaptation and resilience work need to be thinking about how all the costs of doing adaptation and resilience can be built into those proposals. So specifically, this recommendation gets at that funding should be available to train local leaders. So we're talking about faith leaders, business owners, activists, and anyone in a community who's ready to take on a long-term leadership role to help plan and carry out climate adaptation and resilience work right in their community. It's really critical for programs to be community-driven and sustainable, and this is really one really good way um, to, to help make that happen. One amazing example presented during the briefing series is Louisiana's Strategic Adaptations for Future Environments, or LA Safe initiative. It's seen as a model for community-oriented adaptation in general, um, and the initiative was made possible by the Lead the Coast program. The Lead the Coast program trained, and I think continues to train, local leaders on coastal and climate change, 
race and power, facilitation skills, organizing training, and advocacy training. Graduates of Lead the Coast are then paid to organize and facilitate the LA Safe community meetings, leading to community buy-in and interest in adaptation planning through this community leadership. The LA Safe communities now have full adaptation plans and the first projects which were selected by the communities themselves are underway. Thanks, Anna. Uh, I think about that LA Safe briefing we did, Coastal Louisiana, all the time. And it was so inspiring to hear, not just from our panelists about the work they were doing, but the work that Lead the Coast was doing by bringing in these people who hadn't been part of coastal resilience projects in the past, giving them the tools they needed, and then letting them lead the coast, as it were, uh, and, and just involve their communities in a way that um, I hadn't ever seen before. Um, I think about that briefing a lot. It was, I think it really inspired a lot that went into our report. Uh, Amber, what do you think? Uh, can you tell us about another recommendation? One of the unique sections of the report is on cultural heritage. Cultural heritage sites include historically or culturally important places, landscapes, historic buildings, structures, and archeological sites, along with museums and archives, which hold artifacts important to understanding history and culture. Heritage also encompasses intangible elements of culture like oral traditions, arts, manners, rituals, and practices that have come into the present from the past. Many cultural heritage sites and traditions are threatened by climate impacts and require specific attention. Cultural heritage also provides multiple avenues of research for understanding past climate change and human responses to both past and anticipated climate impacts. One of the recommendations in this section is that cultural heritage considerations should be integrated into federal requests for proposals for climate adaptation and resilience work. The idea is that many federal agencies manage or fund diverse adaptation projects. Cultural heritage can be integrated into projects in multiple ways, including archaeological contributions into land management, or ensuring culturally important sites and community histories are incorporated into vulnerability assessments and adaptation projects. One coalition that is already integrating cultural heritage into their climate adaptation work is the Gulf of Mexico Alliance and its coastal resilience team. By including cultural heritage in the Alliance's focus areas, Heritage is more likely to receive consideration when the Gulf of Mexico Alliance is funding and implementing adaptation projects. Thanks, Amber. Um, I think cultural heritage is one of those things that when you read the report, it's interesting to me how many ways it comes through, right? We learned about cultural heritage uh, during our climate and adaptation data uh, miniseries back in April um, in terms of how we protect culturally significant sites. And then during our Great Lakes uh, briefing, we heard uh, from tribal leaders and learned about traditional ecological knowledge that had been passed down by generations. It's a really interesting topic, and it's something that I think, again, uh, a cool through line through the report. And I think of all of the different issues the report covered, it's the one I learned the most about, and it's the one I probably didn't appreciate the most when I first became involved with the briefing series. So I also wanna jump in and talk a little bit about our land use and development section of the report as it is the most extensive one with 12 recommendations. Um, and so the premise of this section is that we have to start thinking about land use and development differently. Climate resilience work actually provides us with an opportunity to do that, to look at land use planning in a holistic way and to re-envision how we use coastal land to decrease climate vulnerability. 
Doing so can produce a whole host of co-benefits like lowering post-disaster costs and having healthier communities. So there's many reasons that we should be thinking about these, these topics. One of the recommendations in this section is that federal agencies should ensure that nature-based solutions are given equal or preferential consideration to gray infrastructure as long-term coastal resilience infrastructure solutions. That's kind of a mouthful. So what do we mean by that? We're thinking about beaches, dunes, coral reefs, and wetlands, for example, that are all critical natural infrastructure that provide protection and resilience to the rest of the nation's infrastructure by attenuating wave action, meaning decreasing the intensity of waves as they hit the shore, and containing flooding. So we should be encouraging restoration, conservation, and management of nature-based solutions as a key part of how our nation thinks about infrastructure. One great example comes from the Great Lakes region and our Great Lakes briefing, where one of our panelists talked about Marquette, Michigan, where a storm destroyed a key section of Lakeshore Boulevard, which is one of the main drives in the city. Local leadership and a community group from the Superior Watershed Partnership worked with the city to move Lakeshore Boulevard 100 yards inland and restore the waterfront to improve the long-term resilience of the local transportation system. Thanks, Anna. Amber, fair's fair. Anna talked about two recommendations. Uh, do you have a second recommendation that you'd like to talk about? Actually, I do. <laughs> um, the report also emphasizes the need to be thinking about how people are going to be moving around the country as a result of climate impacts. People might move because they're just sick of extreme heat in their hometown or the repeated flooding of their home during routine rainstorms or they might be forced to move because their home was destroyed by a wildfire or a hurricane and they do not want to rebuild it. The report suggests that Congress should develop national policy to address the movement of people and populations as a result of coastal hazards, paying particular attention to both managed retreat, meaning people moving based on a plan, and sudden and unplanned retreat or relocation, meaning people had to leave without any prior planning. And it's important to note that this is already happening and we do not have a federal policy or framework on hand to help us think about how to best deal with what is taking place. For example, the town of Holyoke, Massachusetts has a population of 2000 people who migrated from Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. Holyoke received funding from the Massachusetts Municipal Vulnerability Program to interview those residents as a part of a study on climate migration and the shared vulnerability that Holyoke now has with Puerto Rico. Thanks, Amber. Obviously, there is so much information out there about adaptation and resilience and so many things communities are doing to become more resilient. But what makes this report that you put together um, with the rest of the EESI staff so unique? So I'll jump in, Sydney. Um, to me, one of the most interesting and unique parts of the report are really these examples. And we've given a couple of them as we've talked about some of the different recommendations here. But the briefing series provided us with this opportunity to draw together recommendations informed by actual work happening around the country. And it showed what was already happening, which is the inspiration that we really need to take federal climate action and climate policy to the next level. If you're gonna read any part of this report, I'd really encourage you to check out the examples that are accompanying each of the recommendations. We worked really hard to make sure that the series focused on communities while recognizing that every community is different. At the top of the report, we talked about that. 
We had panelists representing native communities in Alaska and in the Great Lakes, rural island communities off the coast of Maine, communities of color, working class and low income communities in the bayous of Louisiana and the shores of Lake Erie, farmers in Wisconsin, the diverse populations that make up major US cities from Seattle and San Francisco to Miami and New York City. These communities span rural and urban spaces, tribal land and culturally and historically significant sites from natural parks to historic town centers. Clearly, these communities are not homogenous, and within even the smallest communities, different stakeholders bring to bear a variety of approaches and ideas. I really want to point out in particular that we know that tribal communities are almost always left out of the conversation, despite having a rich history of building resilience. So working in close collaboration with our panelists, we wanted to make sure that the unique and important contributions and needs of tribal communities were woven throughout the report. I hope that anyone who picks up the report will make sure to really read those recommendations and examples. Let me put myself back in the shoes of a staff person. We work very closely with members of Congress and their staff on both sides of the aisle on all sorts of issues uh, related to climate change and clean energy and environmental topics. Um, you've explained to me what's in the report as a staff person. I understand what's in it, but how am I supposed to use it? Anna, can you describe a little bit about how the report is organized and how a staff person might go about attacking it to get to what they need to know and more importantly, what they need to do about it? Dan, I'm so glad you asked that. Um, we thought a lot about you, staff person, staff people, uh, as we put together this report, hoping to design it in a way that would really make it uh, accessible and usable by you and your bosses and basically anyone who's interested in looking at the future of climate adaptation and resilience policy. So the number one thing I'll say is that you don't have to read the whole thing. It's a bit of a long report. Um, our communications team worked really hard to make it a uh, really attractive and exciting one to read through from, from first page to last, but you don't have to. And it's designed assuming that you won't. Each recommendation is accompanied by a list of categories, policy levers, and key House and Senate committees of jurisdiction. So say you're excited about appropriations. You can easily look for the recommendations associated with House and Senate Appropriations Committee, and then you can go from there to read on about the specific recommendations and examples associated with them. And if you're interested in nature-based solutions, you could check out our category summary table at the conclusion of the report to find a list of all recommendations associated with nature-based solutions as one of our categories. You can also do that for the policy levers that we have listed. So if you're looking for ways that you might try to amend existing programs or legislation, that's one way to look up information. Hopefully this makes the report a tool that you can use, whether you are brainstorming an idea for legislation or looking for a good program to feature at a hearing. We also hope it's accessible to the general public if you're an advocate looking for a new angle on an important issue or a student excited to dive into a new topic. That's great. Thanks so much. And while it's not designed to be read entirely, we certainly aren't going to discourage anyone from doing so. Hopefully everybody downloads it uh, and uh, uh, takes, a, takes a long look at it and, and reads through. I know that I've learned a lot through this process and I expect everyone who picks it up um, will learn a lot as well about coastal resilience and what it looks like in communities all across the country. Uh, thank you, Anna and Amber, for joining us today. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Uh, we hope to catch you again in two weeks. 
when we discuss how the United States is working to reduce aviation emissions. I'm really looking forward to that conversation. And one thing that Anna said, you said the comms team spent a lot of time working on the report. That's certainly true. Our communications director, Omri Laporte, uh, certainly did his share. But it so happens that our very own Sydney O'Shaughnessy uh, is chiefly responsible for the layout and for the um, fact that the report is very aesthetically appealing to look at, well-organized, um, nice color choices, uh, everything you might want to say uh, about how the report looks. So Sydney, I'll turn it over to you. You get the last word. Uh, and uh, thanks once again to our listeners for joining us. Well, thanks, Dan. I couldn't have made the report what it is without all of your hard work and all of the hard work of all the policy staff went into it. Um, but anyways, thank you, Anna and Amber, for joining us. I had such a great conversation and I learned so much. But remember, if you want to learn more about our work on resilience or watch any of our resilience briefings, please go to our website at eesi.org. Also, if after this conversation, you want to download the report for yourself, go to our website at eesi.org slash rfcc or follow us on social media at EESI online. The Climate Conversation is published as a supplement to our bi-weekly newsletter, Climate Change Solutions. Go to eesi.org slash sign up to subscribe. See you next time.